Welcome back to another podcast, uh, the Untitled Philosophy Podcast. I am Antonio. He's with me as always, David. Hello, everybody. David, how are we doing on this fine Monday morning? Uh, one breath at a time, and we're trying to survive. What about you? Pretty much the same. I'm now I'm watching a poor delivery man outside my window drop all of his deliveries, and I think most of that is food. So I do feel oh. for him. He's also one breath at a time. He's fighting his own battle right now. It's a tough battle. That's sad. Fighting his battle to feed the masses. That's right. That is right. He's doing his. He's doing his duty. Well, today uh, we decided to talk about. This like little thing that happened in the States last week. I don't know if you heard about it. Uh, there was, what's the word I'm looking for? An armed insurrection. Um, <laughs> Semi-armed insurrection. I'm sure there was a, at least one armless person there. Probably in, in the mass of everything. Um, so that happened um, in the States. And I wasn't surprised at that point. You know, that feeling, I guess, I don't even know. It's, it's not shock. I looked at it and I thought, mm-hmm, that, that all adds up. Um, yeah, it's the book you get to the last hundred pages and you're like, I don't need to read the rest of this. I know how this is going to play out. Yeah, I write down to how, just how it went, how it acted. It was just like this organized riot protest thing that was violent, but not overly violent. And the... The, uh, the the backlash by police and law enforcement was pitiful at best. Quiet. Right? Yeah. It's more like you guys stop that. No. Okay. Just so you know, I'm mad. Well, that's how it goes with armed insurrections, right? I mean, your police force. The the argument for the police force has always been you just give them bigger guns because somebody's going to show up with bigger guns, and it escalates. And then. When, something like this happens, well, you're kind of glad that nobody was running around on the police side with, with AK-47s and things of that nature, because it might have turned bad real fast. It might have turned bad real fast. Um, though there, there are, we'll, we'll talk more about it, but there are, there are conflicting reports about how easy and how easygoing the police were with those riders, mm -hmm. which is a mildly alarming thing to see um, police take selfies with riders who have broken into the Capitol building. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, sure, I get you. You're not trying to start any kind of huge kerfuffle, to use that word today. But at the same time, maybe don't do that and encourage. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really awkward place to be in because you're seeing people that are part of your community, possibly, but definitely people that are citizens of the United States. They share that with you and you're trying to protect them and protect the Capitol building. So where's that middle ground? And maybe some of them let their own personal beliefs spill over. Maybe they would have rather had a day off and shown up on the other side of the picket fence. That's yeah. even scarier in some regards. That is horrifying. Um, we'll, we'll get more into you know, what some of these groups of people were. Um, but the the stark contrast between what you just said about you know maybe these cops want to be on the other side or the response to it and just go back to the black lives matter protest where the response was full military uh, full military definitely outgunned and that was just for a black lives matter protest 
which has meaning, value, justified. This was an insurrection and they had some batons. Yeah, and the other thing I want to you want to pick at when you see stuff like this is the people who were protesting at the Capitol were the same people that wanted the army and the police to open fire on the Black Lives Matter protesters. Yeah, they were calling for a much much harsher iron boot style clampdown on on that those gatherings that whether yeah. they're justified or not to say yeah we want harsh justice for those people but then also show up assuming that you're going to be able to peacefully protest and then escalate your own peaceful protest. Yeah. That's, that's a conceptual problem that you and I like to tackle sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure we'll talk a little bit about this uh, today. This, this weird kind of privileged position you might have nonsensical beliefs. Um, but what you said kind of underlines some of the, I guess, consistent beliefs that, these groups probably had, right? I mean, there, there's many different groups of people there. You, you had like um, Proud Boys that were there, um, QAnon, I think I'm pronouncing that right as well. Um, you had other supporters from different groups there and they all have kind of their own nexus of beliefs, right? Some are even yeah. more extreme than others. But I think um, what you just said about the Black Lives Matter protest and how they were probably the group that was saying, you know, hammer down on this, that should underline some of the similarities that they have, right? Um, very much support of this. Uh, I don't want to say white power this early into a podcast. So let's just say <laughs> white privilege for now <laughs> and move into that. Uh, but definitely a, uh, I guess, an insulationist type of feel of let's protect our own and promote our own by dispelling or you know, harming the other. Um, and this doesn't mean your your fellow countrymen, right? This probably means your fellow countrymen who happens to share the same skin color as you. And I'm willing to give them at least some benefit of the doubt. If it was a group of white protesters who were, you know, had pink hair and piercings and identified as part of the LGBTQ community, but were totally white, they probably still would have liked some iron boot action on those people. So while there might be a little undertone of racism, and while there might be a big overlap in the Venn diagrams between know we we want a strong government response and those people are black you're likely to get that just as well if those people were any kind of left-leaning political individuals as well yeah yeah you, you you are right um it's not just a race thing it's it is a it's a political thing at this point too um and so, those can be separate things but they can also be very strong when they where they overlap it can be 90 yeah. percent. it's because you're black but also 90 percent because you're also left and I can't really yeah. separate those in my head right now. So I just want the government to crush you. Yeah, I mean, I think we can maybe broad stroke it for now as the other. Yeah. And then we can define what the other is, right? Each of these groups might have a, a different definition of the other. Um, I had to look a bunch of them up on Wikipedia and I went to some of their home websites to try and figure out what the hell these groups actually supported. Um, Enjoy those targeted right? ads now. Oh my God, I, private mode on my wife's computer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that. Um, but I, I mean, some, some of the stuff that I was looking at, like the, um, the QAnon generally believe there's some kind of a male white genocide going on mm -hmm. uh, or against masculinity. And that sentence alone should tell you probably a bunch of their more deep seated beliefs. Yeah. Right. Um, we'll talk about kind of how, crazy that might sound and um 
So um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about their individual belief uh, set for now, right? I think we've already hammered home some of these points about what their general probably shared conceptions are. And the question that we're interested in, and there's no chance in hell we're going to answer this question. Uh, we could have hours of a podcast and we couldn't figure this out. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where we had these individual groups that might share some underlying beliefs? How did we get to them doing what they did last Wednesday? Sure. There's going to be articles written about this for the next 20 years. That's going to be the fun part. So what can yeah. we do in an hour? What can we do in an hour? Um, well, as philosophers, I think what we try and do is always step back and see what we can draw, where we can draw a line of best fit. Can we offer an explanation that might incorporate all of these groups, even if we don't get the minutia correct, right? Because a lot of arguments and debates can spring up if we say, well, it's all about white privilege. It's all about protecting um, white identity, white masculinity. And if you are interested in those nuances, you might lose one person from those groups. And then they point at you and say, well, that's just a typical leftist approach to this. They're trying to lump us all together. They want to call us racist. They want to call us fascists. But for me, I want to try and offer an explanation that can include but uh, addresses, addresses what's going on in the United States, but might include other groups. Like it might include religious extremism. It might include any kind of extremism and what might justify that on a, I don't know, identity-based level, subconscious level, intentional level in some, some regards. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, that's a fair point, right? I mean, one of the main criticisms is as soon as you start critiquing any of these groups, they, they do fall back on the, oh, we're not that, right? Um, I believe the Proud Boys, for example, will say that they're they're not racist. Or you'll have individuals who say basically racist things, but won't admit to any kind of racism because they didn't specifically say like, you know, I hate group X or Y. It's just I wish group X or Y was more like group white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would be your starting uh, what would be your starting analysis i mean we, we talked about this a bit before um and i, I want to give you the space to kind of explore that uh, now well when you asked me the question uh i ended up i i was using a book i, I was reading brave new world at the time actually because here in canada a lot of people have been very hostile about some of the measures that the government have taken to try and slow down the rise in COVID numbers. And a lot of people have been making references to Brave New World, 1984, those kinds of novels. And I thought, I haven't read these in years. So I want to go back and reread and see what kind of nuggets of truth there might be. And just out of interest sake. Yeah. So I ended up buying a copy of Brave New World. And at the end, there's an essay that Aldous Huxley wrote that was probably longer than the book itself where he tackled things like the problem with society and what he was trying to trying to poke at when he was writing the book. And one of the things that he settled on was this concept of over-organization. And it really, that more than anything else struck me as relevant because he also got into things like dictatorships and the Soviet Union at the time because he was writing in the 40s, all of, all of those other elements. But this idea of over-organization and what it does to, to us as people. Now, over-organization is this notion that when everything is regimented, when there's a structure built into your life, the more that the structure takes over, the less that you can make 
rational autonomous decisions. So to the degree that you start losing control over your identity, you start falling back on, and this isn't Huxley's argument, this is where my argument takes off from there. My opinion is that the more that systems start taking over for your choices, the more difficult it is for you to make informed and autonomous choices, and the more hmm. likely you are to cling to things that provide those easy answers. And I offer that as sort of a tangent to another article that I was reading a little bit ago that suggested that conspiracy theories work very well as coping mechanisms because they take a great deal of information that you can't unpack on your own. Like even just getting into things like vaccines, the amount of research that we would have to do to be able to speak intelligently would take us the rest of our lives. So how do I get an, how do I get an, a, an opinion on a vaccine very quickly that will allow me to fall back into and not change or not trouble too much of my other beliefs? And conspiracy mm -hmm. theories do that. When you get a conspiracy theory that says everything is top down, the US election is the result of a, a larger body behind it or a larger social trend. And that's why we do X and that's why we do Y and that's why we do Z. Well, it gives you a very quick explanation, but it also gives you a quick enemy to point at. And I think that that is relevant for all versions of extremist groups, whether it's religious that says, you know, the, the big answer is, is God. And we move back from God to now you have a preacher who's offering you their version of God's will, but it's easier to accept than questioning maybe the roots of your faith. Mm. Or in the case of the election, we have Biden or whatever Biden represents that is our enemy. And we can move down from there. So I can just hate Biden. Or I can say Trump is the solution to my Biden problem. And it reconciles all of your other beliefs around a very simple focal point. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't hate the explanation for it, especially for conspiracies. I mean, that seems to be kind of the main plot of conspiracies, that from the outside looking into that, it's overly complicated. There's no real logical connections. But usually from that conspirators perspective, whatever you want to call them, um, it fits their belief system, right? It, it, they, they tie it in some way and they can't see that it, it's, not rationally, it's not rationally connected. There, there's something that's always going to be wrong about it, right? Um, but they can't see it because it fits into their belief system so well. It offers them answers, offers them clear solutions. And the idea of scapegoating is, um, I think, very important. Uh, especially for some of these groups who are, uh, they need some kind of an enemy to galvanize around because that enemy seems to be the source of all of their problems, uh, whether directly or indirectly, right? Uh, group X is causing the nation to go downhill. Group X is taking my jobs. Group X is um, forcing me to change the way that I interact with the world, right? Um, I now have to speak in specific gender pronouns, right? Um, my masculinity as a male is looked at as now being toxic and negative. So I now have to change my own way of being and habits uh, to make other groups comfortable. And why should I be doing that? So you can kind of demonize something. And it does, you know, it galvanizes groups and it also gives you something to latch onto, whether or not it's real. And for the most part, it's not real. Right. There's always this, there's always just enough rationale behind it 
that you can get a maybe a foothold into where they're going. And this isn't just mm -hmm. this isn't just necessarily the extremist group that, that stormed the Capitol. This this is sort of the conception of the version of radical left that people also put forward when they are critiqued. Is well, you just belong to the radical left, and there is a sense that yeah, the left both groups to varying degrees latch on to a, a larger narrative that you can put forward because there are people that are arguing for income inequality and gender pronouns that don't really grasp the nuts and bolts of it. They might do like I'm doing now and try to mansplain gender concerns. And I'm fully on board with that. At the same time, I try and do it in an articulate way that leaves it open for you to question me. And I'm not rigidly holding on to these beliefs, but I can certainly seem like I am because mm -hmm. there are some things that I will take for granted. Like I think that people deserve to be called by the name that they choose and not the name that you choose for them. This is not, and this, this wouldn't even be an argument for a lot of people. I'm sure even the people on the right wing that are unhappy with things like the LGBTQ movement or pronouns, people that support Jordan Peterson because he troubles these kinds of things. You probably understand that you can't go around calling every person of color that you see by an ethnic slur. Yeah. They, they realize that in an intuitive level that you, you, can't, you just can't do that because that's disrespecting them as human beings. But when you move that to, I want to be they or them and not he or she, that's all of a sudden the line that they're not willing to cross because they, they're not comfortable anymore and they lump that into larger sections of the leftist belief perhaps. Like yeah. you're just, if I, if I agree to the pronouns that I'm also gonna to agree to income inequality, I'm gonna to agree to communism. And then the next thing you know, I've lost my freedom to dot, dot, dot. And the answer on the right is usually I've lost all of my freedoms because Biden and the left and income inequality and communism all wrap into the idea of the enemy. And the enemy is stripping you of what little identity you still hold on to as important to you. Yeah. Um, there's a play between identity and freedoms that I, I kind of want to talk a bit about. I mean, I think we haven't gone off too far yet on some of these kind of core beliefs that they might have. I, I want to go back there a bit, right? But this um, this idea of one, you know, these groups are losing their freedoms, I think is definitely at the forefront. And I'm not saying they are losing their freedoms. Um, I think it's a conception of loss. Uh, there is no freedom that is being lost, right? Me having to, or me being asked to call someone uh, Zer or they or you know them is not a loss of my freedom. It's actually more of an expression of that other person's freedom. They get to finally do something that I can do uh, in a, in the same way, right? They can express themselves in the same manner than I can. I'm not losing anything. They are gaining something kind of equaling out some kind of balance, right? But I think, so that's, I think part of the problem is when you start to have to give out other, you know, freedoms to other people that may not have had it before, the inclination is that for me to give someone a freedom, I must lose something. And it's, it's not, right? It's, the, it's trying to make it more equal. You don't actually lose anything in the process. Other people finally get something, but you've lost the ability to do what you want, I guess, which right. can come across as a, a version of losing freedom. Um, and I think when that happens enough, right? Not just, I mean, move on from the gender equality thing. Just think of, of, of globally of trying to build up groups that have been oppressed in certain ways. 
And once these groups get up to a certain level, I think the fear from this right wing, um, you know, nebulous of people is that for them to have equality means that I have lost something. And probably you've lost a certain privilege in society, but that privilege was not just, right? You shouldn't yeah. just have, you shouldn't have, um, you know, everything the way it is because that system has been built on injustice as a core. So you're trying to equal out the injustice, but you've only ever lived the injustice and you don't know it's injustice, I think for the most part. Right, right? it seems it's fair just, and just to you because that's the life that you've built a life on that system. Yeah, that's the life that you built. That's the life that your parents built, grandparents built, go on backwards, right? Uh, so I think that is one of the galvanizing reasons for these groups is that, you know, for me to give up any kind of social status seems like an infringement on a right that I have, but really it's just giving someone else the right that they have been denied. Well, that seems very fair. I think if we're gonna give the, the critique of that any truck, it starts with this claim that maybe, maybe they take issue with the idea that it's a freedom. Maybe the argument is, it's a top-down concern. I don't want the government, a sense of control, lost, or um, you know, organized by the government. I don't want the sense that the government can tell me what I can and can't say. Right? And yeah, there's a notion of, of freedom in there, but I think that we've lost a concept of freedom long ago. Mm. Now, I think that for a lot of people, and, and you can, everyone's going to disagree with me on this one, I'm sure, but, and I'd like you to challenge me on this, but I think it's this sense of, of, of freedom as freedom from at this point, rather than freedom to. And mm. every time society starts to change, there's this deep sense of I've lost my freedom too, and I don't really have many freedoms left from my perspective because everything else that I do and say and the things that I have to do are very, very governed now. I don't know how much I want to push back on you because I think you might be right there when I bring in the idea of identity and your freedoms together again, right? If, if who you are is tied up with a lot of, you know, what you can do, my actions, how I view myself, when people start telling me, government included, that I cannot do those things, yeah, I can see that individual thinking, one, it's an infringement on my, my rights or my freedoms, whatever you want to have, right? Freedom too, but it's also an attack on who I am. Yes. If I'm that, if I'm that white male who is that traditional like hurrah football, kind of sexist, maybe a little bit implicit racist, um, I'm losing a lot of that stuff now, right? I, yeah. That old that old concept of the 1950s 1960s male is no longer acceptable, right? We don't call women sweetheart um, when we're ordering a drink. There's just we don't do that anymore. <laughs> This is just a, a thing I thought of. I watched Mad Men before. It's, Mad Men's a good show. Um, <laughs> but that, that concept of like strong masculinity is gone. Uh, at least it's, it's going away. And I can see that if you identify with that, you think of it as, you know, I'm, I'm not free to do what I want anymore. And what I want to do is also express who I am. And I'm not allowed to do that anymore, right? So yeah. I, I guess what we're trying to say uh, for anyone that might be like, these two are just spinning their wheels, is we're trying to get into the minds of these people in any way we can, right? We're trying to scratch the surface of why they're so mad, what do they believe is going on? And 
I think this is an easy way to get into it. We're going to have to hit a breaking point where I, I, we talked about this before when we had our, our call about this podcast. It gets to a point where we cannot rationally do what they're doing anymore because our brains stop us. Um, we can put on the, we can put on these people's shoes, but I can't live their lived experience. I can't get to the level of not insanity, but there's an, there's a level of just illogical thought. Something breaks. So we're going to kind of get to that breaking point, I think, in the podcast. So this is the first step, right? It's, you, you can disagree that uh, what we're saying, you can say like, no, it's not an infringement of your rights. Sure, that's fine. We're trying to get into the minds of these people. So we're going to play a little devil's advocate. It may sound sometimes like we are taking their perspective uh, and putting it forward as our own. And I want to make sure anyone who watches it, that is not what we're doing. Um, right. But in, but in philosophy, we have to give them the principle of charity, right? We give them the best argument we can. And then we tear that argument down. It's the only way to the only way to do this. Um, so, yeah, that was just kind of a disclaimer. I know some people will watch this and maybe doze off for a minute or two and come back and go, did Antonio just say he's a chauvinist pig male? <laughs> he just misses calling people sweetheart in a, in a restaurant? What's going on? Yeah. Um, okay. No, that's, that's so, good because it's always the case that as philosophers, we don't necessarily have a cart in the race until it gets to the back end. And that might mean that we say some pretty outlandish things. And mm. it's never an effort to mischaracterize or demean. It's definitely an attempt to wrestle with the rationale. And yeah. at, at some point, yeah, I mean, really, if, if you, you go to, back to Aristotle, because, you know, every now and again, I have to drop Aristotle in here. It mm. does come to a point where all of our beliefs or all of our opinions are based on either uh, to something that's tautologically true, it's true because it's true, it's, it's circular, or you have to assert it as a brute fact. Yeah. And we are, we are run aground there. You just hope that before you get, you hope that you get there in a way that everyone else can ride that train. And there are some beliefs that the, the train goes off the rails halfway to brute factville, and you are very confused, lost in the woods, and you don't know where to go from there. And this isn't, to, yeah. this isn't to criticize any individual who holds these beliefs necessarily. At the same time, it's not to condone them, because I think you can give a pretty good push for why they might be victims of circumstance, whether they want to see themselves as victims or not. Right? A, mm. lot of, a lot of things are created for us. We inherit a world that runs on its own rules, and half of our life we spend learning those rules, and the other half we spend trying to figure out where we fit into those rules. Yeah. And that isn't to excuse it either. Yeah. But there's some there's some element of there's some element of yeah, this some of this might not be intentional on their part, but actions tend to are then intentional, right? It doesn't if I'm a victim of my circumstances, at some point I take ownership and that's where my responsibility starts. Or at least I yeah. should. Yeah. And that the key there is at some point you should take ownership. It may require kind of an epistemic obligation of you to actually look at these facts, but it could also just be that someone brings it up and, and talks to you about this or tells you, right? At, at some point, your belief system becomes your own and you are accountable for it, um, even if you're raised in a very unfortunate situation, right? I mean, you can imagine someone who's raised in small town Canada or US who's just raised in a very small racist community. Um, 
deep seated in the South, what have you, right? That's all they've ever known. They've never known that it's wrong because they're surrounded by people who believe the same thing. But then they go somewhere like you know, Chicago and they realize, oh, this doesn't fly. Like there's something wrong here. So you can either say, well, I'm going to double down and do it anyway, because that's my belief, or you can rethink it. But, you know, I, I don't, when you look at someone who was raised in that, I don't immediately go, well, you're a horrible person because you're a racist. It's just, oh, you had a bad run. Let's see if we can fix it. You don't want to. Now you're a horrible person. <laughs> right. And like you, you, you have to give them, I think this is that this is the point you said, right? You, we don't want to condemn them, but you don't want to condone it as well. They are responsible for their beliefs and especially their actions on those beliefs at some point. And, you know, right. I, I don't know, whatever point that might be, we're not going to figure it out. Um, so we're not condoning what these people are doing. We're not excusing it. We're trying to get at where you might come from, from it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where, that's where I wanted to, to run, because I think that when we're talking about violence, now there, there's two ways that I want to take up violence, but when we're talking about violence, there is this notion that inherently, I don't think people tend toward violence and very few people, it's a small minority that engage in violence for its own sake. Right? Those people mm -hmm. tend to be, to be criminals. We tend to, to institutionalize those people. If you're out there killing or hurting or maiming or causing violence because it brings you pleasure, then you might not be within the wheelhouse of this conversation at all. If that might be yeah. one of those, we just, we're just not talking to and about those people anymore. Yeah. And if you're not one of those people, then I, then what spurs us to violence? And it's usually some notion of self-preservation. Mm -hmm. And this is why I wanted to preface with, I'm not excusing or condoning, but at some level you have to assume that the people that, maybe not the people that were vandalizing the Capitol, but the people that were willing to engage in violence and were there, those people probably weren't doing it for the pleasure of it. They were doing it because it was somehow connected to their notion of survival, which yeah. means, which means they're, they're very, which means at that point you are very, you're responding rather than acting. You're not choosing anymore. You're responding to something that you think is an existential threat. And if yeah. we're there, how can, I don't know if I can get to the point where I could conceive of president Trump losing the election or Joe Biden becoming president as an existential threat to my survival physically, but maybe my identity. Maybe it's the last hurrah of the last vestige of what I've been holding on to because President Trump did speak to a sense of that masculine football is good, never take a knee at the anthem, stand up. You know, Matt, he was very much, he would fit very, very well in the time that he was born. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about this kind of the, the self-preservation, right? You're, you're lashing out trying to survive. And I, I can't get to that concept, but it's because we're not that, we're not that person, right? I, that, that is one of the blocks. I can understand in, I guess, a third person sense that if you truly believe that your identity is being... Um, not lost by on accident, but lost on purpose. There is a, a, a guided, directed kind of program against who you are and what you believe in. And this president, for example, is the symbol of it, at least for now. Yeah, I, I can see why someone would think this is for my very survival of who I am. I mean, I physically won't die, 
but my identity will be destroyed, right? I, I won't be able to do what I want to do. My freedoms for will be gone. Mm-hmm. So I can get into that mindset, but I can't really appreciate it in the same way. Um, I, I, <laughs> that, that, that's the point where I, I just hit, right? Like I understand why, why people would, would, would get that violent. I understand the instrumental use of violence there if that is your last resort, right? It's not just lashing out. There's, there's reasons for the violence, right? You want to show how upset you are and you want to make sure that you continue to survive as a cultural identity. Um, but then I have to take a step back and say, are you actually being destroyed as an identity? Right. Like, are, and to play devil's advocate, I can see a yes to that answer where that kind of persona, that kind of culture, that way of being is, it hasn't been acceptable for a, a long time, but I think it's becoming more and more obvious that it's not acceptable anymore um, in private and in public. But that's not necessarily a negative, right? Uh, there, we, we, we've talked about this in our last podcast, but what we owe to each other. It is very hard to be in a cooperative society if, some of your deep-seated beliefs are, I am inherently better than you because of your gender, skin color, your nationality, what have you. Um, just period, right? I am a morally better person. There are morally salient features of you beyond your actions that tell me that you are lesser than me. It is hard to have a community based on that when there is literally no evidence, right? All the propositional beliefs that you have about these groups are going to be proven false by facts in the world. And if you're not willing to accept and change, then we, we can claim that, yeah, you're something like an inherent racist. And that kind of persona doesn't work in this world, it is cooperative in the sense, right? Uh, and anyone can argue against this and say, no, it's not a cooperative in the same thing, right? It can be a whatever, a different kind of system, what have you. I haven't heard too many people say that, but not going to deal with it. Um, so yeah, your, your identity and culture might be slowly getting pushed aside saying that's no longer acceptable, but that's not a justified reason to do what you're doing. Well, that seems reasonable. I think that you get, you, you get some pushback because, and I hate using the word conspiracy theory because now it's become so value laden, but yeah. when you have a group like QAnon who can offer you an explanation for your anxiety, right? Some people don't really recognize that, don't really recognize the, the relationship that you just laid out. Nobody's, I think, thinking very critically about their concept of identity, what troubles that concept of identity. It's just a vague sense of unease, mm-hmm. right? The things that I said at the supermarket are now getting me dirty looks. So now I don't feel comfortable in the supermarket anymore. And I don't really know why. The things that I say on Sunday with my wife and her friends, now I'm getting dirty looks from them and I'm uncomfortable and I don't really know why. And it's because they're becoming more in tune to the systemic issues that plagued them for so long. And there, there is that pushback and it doesn't necessarily come through as, Oh, this is coming back because what I used to do was possibly misogynistic, possibly, possibly racist. Yeah. It's just coming back at me is this vague sense of I don't belong anymore and I don't like that. 
And then a group can come along and say, the reason that you don't like that is because there's a, there's a concerted effort from the left, in this case, to undermine masculinity, to undermine your whiteness, to, to put into place things that disenfranchise you, and you're just feeling that anxiety. And we've got a very good explanation for why that happens. And it all starts with uh, whatever that might be. In the case of in the case of other extremes, that that meh is something different. It's the Western culture. It's women. It's some it's some other notion of of what's going on. But in this case, you can point to Biden and say Biden is the arbiter of the thing that will make you much less comfortable. Yeah, and and you're right. And I think it circles back to this idea of these are people who have traditionally privileged positions, right? Whether or not their life looks as privileged as we would say privileged position. But if you are a white male American or even a white female American, you are better off from birth than these other groups, right? You have certain privileges and statuses that these other groups do not have access to yet. And they certainly want those privileges, but that doesn't mean that your privileges, again, go away. It just means that you can't treat these people like lesser. It, it, that I think is one of the, 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 the conflicting points that I think really makes the difference between someone who's going to get this and change their mind and someone who won't, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you can't convince them that it's not an attack on you, it is them trying independently to get the same rights as you, right? We can all have an, an equilibrium of, of kind of respect and rights. It might mean that everyone goes a little bit lower, right? Everybody does. Yeah. If you can't call these people whatever you want, they in turn can't call you whatever they want. It, it's reciprocal. It ought to work um, that way, still, yeah. It, it ought to work that way. So you're not losing anything. It's, it's, you're, you're self-leveling. But from that privileged position, I understand that it can be scary because that's what you've always known. If you're, if you're tied into that position, it's who you are, and it goes away, it can be alarming, right? Um, I mean, from a, I'll give you a benign example. Um, individuals can teach at universities like tenured professors who have no PhD or master's if they have enough work experience. When I first found out about that, it kind of bothered me because I thought, hey, I've done all this work. I've done all this stuff. I wasn't just born with a doctorate, but I've done all this. And you have all these other people now who can do it. And I felt like I was losing something, but I'm not. The more, the more you think about it, it's like, I'm not losing anything. There is no, um, like my pay doesn't go down. My respect doesn't go down. These people just get to do something that they are completely qualified for because they've had 30 years of experience and they can do it just as well as me. I have no experience in the world. I'm just a <laughs> nerd who reads books. There you um, go. So, I mean, that's a benign experience of it for me of I thought I had a privileged position and I realized these people aren't taking anything from me whatsoever. Uh, they have every right and access to the same thing I do because they have the same experience, right? A, a doctorate is not a, a salient reason for why they should not be able to teach in university if they can. That's fair. And it might start with, that might start as a feeling of entitlement, right? You might have yeah. had a feeling of entitlement. And yeah. then when you were disabused of that feeling, you can sit back and critically consider it, or you could have just become more resentful. Yeah. And um, that's how quickly little little hate groups like Maybe a, maybe a union might start that doesn't that tries to fight against that kind of thing. It just starts oh, with yeah. that feeling of entitlement that's been thwarted at some systemic level. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe one day we'll talk about, you know, unions and schools and tenured professors versus contract lecturers because there's a there's a fight there. But we'll move on. Um, I want to talk a bit more about conspiracies. So I mean, we we mentioned them as um, a potential coping mechanism, right? An easy answer all solution. It's it's the it's the chop and slap that you see at 3 a.m. in the morning that answers all of your life's problems. It's going to easily make my food easier. I'm going to eat healthy omelets. I'm going to get in shape. Conspiracies act, horrible analogy in a similar sense. They give you the answers you need. And the further along you dig into these conspiracies, um, the more branches pop out, right? Because once you can start questioning things like, well, if the government can, can cover up this, why can't they also have covered up this? And then you just branch out. It's not that difficult. Um, the conspiracies that I'm more concerned about were, at least in this case, was the galvanizing voice of Donald Trump. Yeah. So he's been on a campaign for the last four years, I guess five to include the his run-up uh, of a smear campaign against uh, media sources, um, mm -hmm. academics, other politicians, right? People who have information, knowledge, and some kind of privileged power. And he's been on a campaign to, I guess, um, devalue those, right? Um, invalidate them. And he's done an amazing, amazing job at it. He has, I don't know how many of the 70 million people believe what he truly puts forward. Um, but he is kind of the mastermind of this kind of conspiracy about, for me, you know, this political system that you're not privileged enough to be a part of as an individual, right? You don't know the inner workings of what happens. Um, I have almost no real concept of the difference between what the governors, the Senate, who does what, when this gets passed. It is like needlessly complicated to the point where I'm like, I really don't get it in the, in the strongest sense. And I think an average American voter is going to say the same thing. Yeah, I have no idea how it all really operates different branches. So when someone who has this kind of persona, this power, and another political party backing them saying, you know, all of this is bullshit. It, it's no, it's not even bullshit. It's just fake. It's, it's yeah. lies. They're hiding things from you, right? I'm the one who's going to tell you the truth. I'm going to say it in the plainest dumbed down language that I can, which is probably the highest level of language he's capable of as well. Um, I mean, hey, I've given him the benefit of the doubt, but holy shit. He's <laughs> a joke of a, he's just a joke. But he seems to be a shrewd enough politician here because the truth belief, like truth and falsity don't mean anything for him anymore. And it's losing um, its power in the States. It is mm -hmm. images that are put forward. And he's put forward an image of himself as being kind of the sole arbiter of truth, justice, and the protector of the American way. And that's a scary American way because that is that 1950s football, rah, 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 women are just kind of objects to be looked at segregation why do you keep attacking football i don't know well I, I guess when i think of football i just think of a bunch of people slamming their heads together and then getting surprised they have concussions you're describing yeah, you're doing, too. they don't slam their heads directly football literally starts with them hitting heads 
It's the first <laughs> play. You imagine if hockey players did that, the first thing, drop the puck and they just smash heads together. Nothing works in football. Yeah. That's the goal. Uh, no, when I think of football, I think of like traditional, like American value. Um, I guess we could use baseball from now on if we want, but I'm getting a little off topic here. That conspiracy, that galvanized them. I want to get more into that. I think I did a lot when I was kind of explaining them in general, but I want to get into that idea of how do all of these groups in this nexus of the right buy into his conspiracy theories? And I mean, to the point where he told them to go attack the Capitol building. And he said, well, I'll be there with you. didn't use those words explicitly. True. He said, let's go march on the Capitol building. I'll be there with you. I'm coming with you. And then as they went, he just went home. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the, the post riot, post Capitol interviews, a lot of the people that were there are very clearly of the opinion that President Trump told them to do it or that they were doing it for him. Yes, it was something that he would want or he would allow, he would let us do it. Um, I was reading an article from the New Yorker of kind of an, an embedded observer and he overheard some of them say, um, oh, it's no big deal. Senator Ted Cruz would have wanted us to do this anyway. So just let's do it. Like he would be the supporter for us. We get the mm -hmm. same thing for Trump. Um, how do we get there? Like, how, how, how did we get to that level of, like, we have all these little individual conspiracies and then you have the one big one and he's pulling the strings on all of them. Yeah. I wonder if he is doing any of the pulling. My, 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 genuine, my genuine opinion at this point is that I think that he's is invested in these conspiracy theories. We'll keep using the word even though I don't really care for it, but... I think he's an, he's an invested in them as everyone else is. Mm. I think the, the history of Donald Trump, when you look at large events in his life, it's always been do something that you kind of know is wrong, seek to skirt blame and distribute it amongst as many people as possible. It's why he declared his bankruptcy and his businesses declare bankruptcy, but he never does. He protects yeah. his wealth. It's why when he went for the presidency uh, the time before he won, he bowed out because he just didn't like the way that the system was running. It's very much, there's an explanation for everything. And I think he is in tune with that as well. Uh, there was a little piece that I was reading that sort of mapped out how shortly after QAnon, the internet group started to piece things together in certain ways. President Trump started piecing them together in very similar ways. His speeches changed as the general umbrella of QAnon conspiracy theories changed. So I don't know if he was, you know, if we think grand conspiracy on the left, President Trump is the is the arbiter. He's the one that's creating these conspiracies and distributing them. But in a practical way, I don't think we give any of our governing officials that much credit, right? Right or left, government is always sort of this barely functioning thing. And Trump's history in business is a, very, a barely functioning person who manages to maintain his wealth while not succeeding at anything individually. True. And the seems to be what he's done now I, I, so even if he's not the the generator of it he seems to be one of the main mouthpieces for it i mean he gives yeah. these he gives these conspiracies validity when the president of the united states i don't care who you are says something as true you have to at least double check 
You have to yeah. give it a quick fact check, make sure like, what is he doing? Um, I, I'm, I'm, so I used to think that Trump was just a bona fide liar. Um, but the more that I watched him throughout this presidency, the more I, I, I've come to the belief that he's just a bullshitter. And what, what you said about, you know, when these, when these, you know, QAnon conspiracy got a little bit more you know, fleshed out and he seemed to also change his mind the same way. This is one of the things that the, the bullshitter does um, is he puts forward, he puts forward a position of himself, right? These are my beliefs. These are my values. And he waits to see what the response is. Yeah. So if a large support and base is putting forward a position, well, why not hold on to that position for a day or two, see where it gets you. There's no real downside because he doesn't, he, he never, um, he doesn't hold anything. He doesn't claim something to really be true in any meaningful way, right? It's, it's true right now because it, it helps me if it's true. It's false tomorrow if it helps me that it's false. So you can't stick anything to him. You can't literally look at him and say, you're a liar, because I don't know if he believes or cares enough to believe in the truth of these things. I think he's just purporting views that help an image of himself. And the image of himself is, I mean, someone called him uh, all hail Emperor Trump during that stupid rally. His image of himself is this you know, almost, you know, religious-like figure who's here to save America and politics by doing nothing other than just uh -oh. saying things. I mean, no, I, he really has done nothing, right? I mean, if, if you look at his record. What has he done to save America? He's actively ignored a, um, a virus that is killing hundreds of thousands of them, while at the same time saying it's not serious, but also um, praising himself for coming up with a vaccine for a virus that is not serious and won't kill you, but there's a vaccine for it. Yeah. So it, but it doesn't matter. None of it matters because it's not a lie. It's just a persona that he's putting forward that I think these conspiracies feed back and forth into him, right? Like if, if you have a, if, if you're a member of this um, you know, QAnon group and you see the president express the same views or similar views as you, that is validation. And right. it's not just, oh, I'm right. It's, oh, I'm right. And now I have to spread this word even more because I am right. And if I'm right, this whole thing is just a shoddy endeavor, right? Like the government is trying to kill us, get rid of us, what have you. Right. It's not, it's not a benign conspiracy. It's no, a deep-seated one that has implications like at some point, yeah, we should probably go and see what we can do in Capitol Hill and maybe take a prisoner or two, right? Show them our anger, whatever the extremes are on both sides. So that was a lot for me. Maybe it was. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> you, feel, you look like you've gotten a weight off your chest. I, I, that was... I, it's been hitting me for a while. I've been, um, I've been reading Frankfurt again. So Frankfurt on bullshit. Um, eventually, I'll put a video up on my other channel. Uh, but he talks about the bullshitter. And the more I read Frankfurt, the more I look at Trump. And I'm like, yeah, that's the bullshitter. I mean, most, yeah. I think most politicians are bullshitters at some point, right? It's, they put something forward to see what happens if it clicks or not, especially if you're running into an election. Uh, no one hard and fast with this. Are, these are my rules. These are what I believe in. 
more like let's right. try this for now not working okay let's switch it up pivot this is what i really meant it's the a frustrating thing it is and then i was gonna use the word frustrating but scary scary is probably a better descriptor when you see that what it makes an effective politician is also at the heart of what makes an effective fascist like i read i was reading on the rise of fascism and again brave new world huxley he's writing these things seeing the aftermath of dictators like Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin. And he's poking at what these things have in common and the rise of fascism does something similar. And the one, the one story that always struck me is that uh, when Hitler was giving his speeches, he made a couple of decisions before he gave speeches. He liked to have them at night because people mm -hmm. were a little bit tired. And when you're more tired, you're more susceptible to, to messaging. He would also have a number of talking points, but no real speeches written, and he would watch the crowd. And as the crowd started to viscerally respond, because as we're tired, we're more likely to do things like lean in or our eyes get bigger. You can see a massive crowd when body language starts to shift. Yeah. And when he saw it catch, that's where he would start focusing his energy. And the more that it caught them, the more impassioned that he would get. Yeah. And it's, it's not a way to galvanize people in an intellectual way. It's not a way to lead. It's a way to coerce. Yeah. at its heart and trump is very effective at doing very similar things he's very coercive because like you said he doesn't genuinely hold any beliefs people have called him out you know you can play a videotape of three minutes of him talking and then quote him and he will turn around and say you've taken that out of context or i didn't mean it that way or it was obvious that i meant it in a different way and you are just trying to catch me and yeah. no, no explanation for what he actually meant, because then he can shift and do it again later. If you don't commit to anything, you can't be held accountable for anything. So you can say things like, I can drag a, somebody out in the middle of what? Uh, during the campaign, he said he could pull somebody out in the middle of a street in New York, shoot them, and people would cheer him. Yeah. And like that, that kind of sounds like he's willing to threaten people, but it's not an actual threat because he didn't mention a specific person. Yeah, it just means he's willing to do the hard things for the people. Yeah, and there and there's and, and that's how you galvanize that kind of fervor, right? And that's how you tap into this the energy of anxiety. When somebody is very much my identity's a threat, I'm very anxious about that. And then you have someone like Donald Trump who's willing to try and mirror that because he wants to connect with you in some way. Then you have a group that has genuine anxieties genuine in the sense that they actually feel them, that they're not making them up for their own advantage. You have a, a president who's very much a figurehead who can say, I understand that you have this anxiety. And when you respond, he responds in kind. Without saying that he supports you, he's responding in kind. The more you are concerned about the left, the more he talks about the left. The more concerned you are about Black Lives Matter, the more he talks about it. Yeah. And then you just end up in this back and forth dance. It's not, it's not rational anymore. There's no rational reason that you're agreeing with everything that he's saying. You're agreeing because he started moving with you long enough that you just followed his lead. Yeah. And he's just following your lead. So he can never really be held accountable because he didn't intend for it to end up that way. He never explicitly yeah. said he wanted it to end up that way, but it was very clear to everyone on the dance floor that that's where things were going. Yeah. It is, it, it's scary. And I mean, you might say, well, is it really that problematic? Look what happened in the States. 
right? I mean, there's a reason that he's, I mean, he's going, he's going to go through an impeachment trial for the second time for inciting this insurrection uh, or whatever you want to call it for now. This is dangerous. This mm-hmm. is, this is real life consequence. Like you are watching the potential in a different time, in a different place, this could have easily been the rise of a white, of a, of a fascist government. Right. You, 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 at some point, like we could have watched democracy fall if people had just done what he wanted them to do. Thankfully, there was enough sense in the Republican Party from enough people, a very small percentage of them, to at least stop or to not overextend into um, you know rights that they didn't have. Right. I mean, it seemed like the the last galvanizing point was uh, Pence not. Um, throwing out the votes, which he has absolutely zero power to do. It's a ceremonial position, really just showing the general public of a safe transfer of power. It's a, it's just an open way to say, listen, yes, we are, we are giving up power to the rightful person who has won it for Pence to have that power. I mean, just take a step back and think, right? If the vice president could have that power, then we, we would have had Al Gore as, as president. He would have just been like, no, it's me. Sorry, guys. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, there's there's enough sense in that party. We don't have time to talk about my concern with that party uh, fully. Uh, I will briefly mention that I I am on the fence about individuals of who might believe in this right wing way of life deeply or who are just using it in a similar way as Trump. I think the, there's some new sources that are calling it Trumpism, like it's a new thing because they've never looked at other fascists before. Right. Um, though if you if you watch any kind of late night comedy, they have all made the equation for him and other fascists and strong men for years, but no one pays attention because it's a funny man telling his jokes. Um, right. So I, I don't know how many of them actually believe this or how many of them are using it. Either way, it's a scary answer. Because if, if they truly believe it, then you have individuals who have deep-seated power, right? Uh, like generational power, like someone like Mitch McConnell, yeah. who are going to continuously put forward and promote this way of life. Or you have individuals who are just jumping on board. And how do you jump on that moving ship if you don't want to be you know, the, the, the de facto leader who's making the call versus the guy who's kind of in the group helping them move as a herd right because you don't want to take full responsibility for it because that's that's political suicide you want to have that trump kind of teflon coating but he doesn't have full control over this group Uh the the group has i mean the, the group has control over themselves and that's worrisome too because now if you have a political party like the republicans who are going to try and use um this kind of fermenting anger they can't control that without taking full responsibility for it. And then you have right. the left and the rest of the world looking at you going, what the absolute shit are you doing? That's, you can't do that. You are literally destroying the republic that you hold so dearly, law and order and respect and government, right? Strong C, conservative. And you're saying, down with that, let's have ourselves a republic again. Just me. Right. Yeah, it is. It's one of the deep ironies of the of the right sometimes is that 
I can get on board with this notion of individualism, liberty, and freedom, and small government. You can ma maybe make arguments for that, but the people that are in favor of small government, fiscal responsibility, maybe law and order as a buzzword, it's all dog whistles at this point, but they were also the people who were willing to instill President Trump, whether you believe that the election was, was rigged or not, they still had no problems with the idea of, of putting Trump up after losing the election and giving him blanket authority. That's mm -hmm. the scary part, right? You have the, if you're the party of freedom and an individual liberty, the last thing you should want is to give a single individual emperor style powers. And that's one of those logical, that's one of those logical breaking points for me is that as much as I want to try and explain some of it, I can't get the, you have to understand if you think that your rights are being infringed on by the left government, but you want an emperor, maybe, maybe your problem isn't with government. You're just, you just have a problem with government that doesn't look like you or government that doesn't behave like you. Yeah. And uh, especially the behave like you, because that's what he's been doing for the last four years. He's been behaving just like the herd wants him to and how mm. he wants the herd to behave. So yeah, I, I mean, oh man, it is a logical break. It is a deep logical break, right? Because you're willing, in a sense, to give up. If, if you can arm, if you can violently overtake the government to have a government that you want, you have given up your right to vote. Yeah. You've given up democracy. You've given the deepest part of your culture and probably who you are of your freedoms by saying, cool, we don't want this freedom anymore. We want to give you absolute power. And then what happens when that power is turned against you? Right. And eventually it's going to be turned against you. There, there has, I, as far as I know, there's no fascists who have this, everybody's been like, yeah, this is great. Love it. Someone's like, right. If you have power, you're going to try and consolidate the power and make the power stronger, which means yeah. certain rights are going to go away. And you're going to have half a country who did not want this. Who yeah. I suspect won't just take it quietly. And, oh, man, I mean, you talk about these, like you read this stuff in history and you tell people that it's dangerous. And some people still have the gall to say it's not dangerous, that this was nothing, that this right. was just a protest. No, there's so much, there's such a deep problem in America, and it has spread to Canada and other places. We, we talked about this yesterday when we, when we spoke, right? We know people that are Trump supporters or believe in some of the same underlying things, right? Uh, I don't know any specific COVID deniers, but I know some people who are damn close to being COVID deniers. And it still right. shocks me. Like, yes, the globe somehow is coming up with this fake number and well, we're just killing people for fun. You're right, because that makes way more sense than there's a virus. And it, it's worrisome because these people have, thankfully, they, they don't have this public voice anymore. But it's a matter of time before someone in that Republican Party takes that lead. Because 70 million people voted for them. When you say that, vo that voice, we should be clear that you mean President Trump specifically oh, yeah, and not their yeah. right to speak. Yeah, and we're yes, not yes. we're not suggesting some sort of we should let <laughs> we should stop anyone from the right wing from ever speaking again. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, that that was 
let's let's clarify that, right? Someone in that Republican Party is going to speak for them as a group at some point, who is going yeah. to look like Trump, sound like Trump, and that is going to be worrisome because that means in the next four years and continuous, we're going to have to deal with this, right? This is not gone away. Like during the Obama administration, the divisions were shown more stark, and now during the Trump administration, it's a chasm. Yeah. I mean, there's clear divides that I don't know how you're supposed to heal these divides unless you can tackle these kind of conspiracies and false beliefs in a meaningful way. And it's really hard for this democratic government to say the things that you believe about us are wrong because they're the ones who you believe are doing things like lying. Right. So I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't know how that's going to be. How that's going to be solved, um, and that's not really the point of this podcast, right? The point was was to try and get at some of these beliefs, which I think we did a, a fairly decent job to, right? We hit a couple walls where we can't jump, um, but I think we should. Should get. We should kind of wrap up and sum up, because we're going to go down more dark road. Because I, I still have other things I want to talk about, but I do want to, you know, circle Same back time. to this idea of belief, and, you know, what can be done. Um, I've read kind of you know pop culture articles, things on the New Yorker, what have you, right? You know, uh, how to talk to your family during Thanksgiving about conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. and most of these articles are like basically treat them like they're children. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the best way, but it seems to be the most effective way um, in, in the sense of you let them tell you their beliefs and you try and highlight when they tell you things that are completely contradictory, mm-hmm. right? And if they refuse to see the contradiction, you have other avenues. You can show them individuals who they might respect, right? Who have social value to them or social cachet. And you can say, you can show them, you know, their view and their opinion and say, well, actually, you know, the person that you value so deeply and you think is a champion of it actually believes the opposite of you, right? You, you can give them examples, but I don't know how to truly deal with someone who believes in these deep conspiracies because every time I engage with them, there is a point of no return where we hit a wall and I can't give you any evidence anymore that you will accept because all of my evidence is tainted. Right. Because the conspiracy tells you to not believe my evidence. And you want to just shake this person and say, anything that tells you to ignore all evidence that proves it wrong is lying to you. It is trying to keep you from something. And you should at least dig into that idea, right? If something's telling you, don't think too much, just listen to me, you should be wary. You should. And the, da- the danger there is there's just enough material out there that they want to grab you and shake you and say the same thing to you. Right. They've, I, I've had those same conversations where somebody will pull out this Newsmax article and say, well, this justifies everything that I've just said. And like, oh, they've got some they're mentioning quotes and things. Let's look those up. They're not even in the speeches or they're they're there, but it's like half of the sentence. Mm-hmm. Or the person was saying, you know, there are people out there that will say this and my opinion is different but it's just taken as the snippet of what someone else might say yeah and that's that's true on both sides yeah but you're not gonna i don't think you're gonna get much much headway you're not not gonna make much headway trying to do that 
trying to hold up evidence because like you said, there's there's an inherent nature to reject contrary evidence because you also have evidence. Yeah. And I think it, the, the only solution would be a large social shift to prize things like education because if you don't have these notions of identity that can be deeply wrapped up in conspiracy theories or large tent beliefs that don't have any practical merit, that doesn't start when you're 40. Right? You mm -hmm. don't then look at this and say, oh, well, I see that this belief was founded on the fact that this was my family, this is my upbringing, these are the, this is where, I, where I've been employed, this is my education. We don't do a lot of that because it wasn't, it wasn't enculturated into us earlier. And it, yeah. unfortunately, we lost some of the podcast about our, our experiences and our feelings with education. But ed education is where that starts. And it's not indoctrination as education. We don't want to tell people no, everything from the left is correct. But this notion that you can have a belief, but withhold judgment on that belief. Mm -hmm. right? if, I, if it's cold, it's supposed to rain, it might snow. If I hold on to things like that belief, it might snow. And then if it snows or it doesn't snow, I am not personally liable. I'm not at fault. I don't take that personally. That's one thing. But nobody's in that situation. Very few people are. Yeah. They're in the, this is, this is how you do things mentality. My identity is wrapped in how things are done. Whether they're done that way or not, that doesn't matter because my belief is that they're done that way. And that's important to me. And once you've let people in large groups feel that way, now you've just created easily manipulatable individuals. And this is a tactic that, that lots of large groups do. And I called, mm. I, I, I hit on, I was reading something a couple of days ago about motivational speakers and how the people that make a living off of being motivational speakers, their retention tends to be very low, but the passion in the first little while, whatever that little while looks like is very high in their fan base, in their groups that follow them. Yeah. And it's this notion of, I give you an in-group. You can come be part of my in-group if you embrace everything. That in-group gives you identity, safety, security, and affirmation. And their lives do marginally improve, not because of the information that they're receiving might be factually true, but because now they have safety, security, support, and identity. And they will defend to the death, like the people that read The Secret when it was, when it came out, it was really popular. People would get into like vicious arguments with me when I tried to point out that it was just basically existentialism with a smattering of Buddhism. <laughs> No, no, this is not to criticize, but just to say, like, this is not new. This, these, are, these have always been placating beliefs. Yeah. And they all do that. And I don't know how you break that habit, but anybody that's offering you a secure, safe affirmation of your identity is probably trying to manipulate you in some way if they're yeah. tackling a large group. Yeah. I, I don't know how you're going to deal with that. Um, I mean, like, oh, man, just where we get our information from, the kinds of information we get have been diluted through things like social media and Facebook. And I hate to blame them for it, but hell if I can't blame Facebook for propagating. I don't like the term fake news because it's too ambiguous. Just yeah. propagating false, clearly false information that is a target for something. Um, but individuals get their news from that. Um, there, there's, there is a, a shift away from educating yourself and looking towards educated people for advice and information to kind of this shared collective thought process of things like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok 
where you know your your group thinking and groupthink can be great, right? What people around you are thinking, you can usually solve problems and so forth. But at the same time, you know, we we don't privilege news sources and we don't privilege academics. We think that they are lying or talking down to us in some way. And I don't know when that shift happened. I, I, I truly don't know when. I mean, I remember being, it's probably my last thing that I talk about, but I remember being a kid and, and it was a benign example. My parents would ask me why I got the grade I got. They would question me. Kids now question me about why they got the grade. So parents come to me and say, why did my kid get this grade? Not implying that the child did something, but implying that I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. So my status as an educator of that position is not looked at anymore in the same way. There's, there's, another, there's another rising group, right? I mean, it used to be like journalists, academics, doctors, lawyers, and now we're looking to Karen on Facebook for our help and information because Karen's telling us what we already believe and she's giving us those, that information. Could it be clips, what have you, right? News articles that are written that are clearly legitimate, but they're lies. And you're feeding into this machine of this is my own belief system. I like this belief system. It works for me. At the same time, you have to discredit the old guard of knowledge where, you know, the politician, the academics and so forth, the scientists, they're not giving you the truth anymore. Uh Somehow they're not a credible source because they have some kind of hidden agenda, be it leftist or what have you. And I don't know when that shift happened, but I know it happened in our lifetime because we used to yeah. go to academics for sources and now we go to Wikipedia or we go online to Reddit. Right. Now, culturally, there, there's a lot to be said for the, the advent of television. You know, I think the, the, it's largely accepted now that Kennedy beat Nixon because Kennedy presented much better on TV. And you can watch that debate and see Nixon just sweat. And that's not to say Nixon was, was the better candidate, right? Given what we know from history, Nixon probably wasn't the most upstanding candidate. Whether you believe Kennedy <laughs> was or not, different question. Yeah. But you see him sweating and stammering, and he looks like he was beaten before he started. Except and it was the Giuliani r- did that a couple weeks ago, and people still vehemently supported him. <laughs> Fair enough. It, Fair it enough. has changed. It has changed. But you're right about you know the, the shift between persona and content i think is one of the starting points i think that's what you might be getting at and yeah I, I was getting the style sorry i interrupt you yeah no I no it was perfect you, but... i go i go on a while i get around my point more than to it <laughs> no no i wasn't trying to speed you up i just it hit me and like this is half you always talking about and in in my mind when i look at kennedy and you look at nixon kennedy is you know well attractive white man and nixon was just this weird aging jiggly grandpa <laughs> who, because of how he presented himself, looked weak, looked like he might have been lying deception. Probably was, because we found out some stuff later about him. Um, but that charismatic person that we voted for ended up being a womanizer and so forth, right? Right. Yeah, he, so, he used all those charms and all that style to get what he wanted. Yeah, so you are right. Style over substance. And these are things that help feed into that conspiracy and the beliefs about why you generate them, I think. Yeah, and we're there. We're there now. You were mentioning things like, like education, journalism, right? There were Supreme Court cases in the states. Somebody was going after Fox because they were producing news that wasn't real news. 
And the argument that they made was, we're not a news program, we're an entertainment program. And that, that flew, right? So right, you have this idea that now we're receiving information for entertainment. We're receiving it for clicks. We know this. Yep. On an intuitive level, yep. we know that even legitimate news sources are producing to get our eyes on them rather than producing to tell us something. Yeah. And, and once I, we this, know this that, goes... we're done, right? Intuitively, we can just check out. Anytime anything disagrees with our opinions or our ideas, just for clicks, doesn't matter. Not yeah. relevant, not real. That's what I think most people do, but the thing that you should probably do is just take it with a grain of salt. Um, yeah. Like my, my family watches CNN a lot and CNN is, it looks kind of boring, but they try and put the headlines, the breaking news, they go here, they do that, right? They're trying to entertain you and keep you, keep you watching, even if they're not talking about anything. And instead of saying, oh, I disagree with it, just take it with a grain of salt. Go watch Fox News after or go watch something else. Go watch the BBC and see if there's actual correspondence and correlation between events, right? right. If, if two news sources are saying that reality is fundamentally different in the same event, then you have to double check and go with another, another source. But most of the time, you'll go to the familiar source because it tells you what you want to hear anyway and it entertains you, right? If, if you really dislike Trump, watch CNN. They spend most yeah. of their time shitting on him. If you really love Trump, go watch Fox News, except for when they News said Max he lost now. the election. Newsmax or Oasis, whatever, Oasia. There's some other news things as well. Go watch them and they'll fluff them up for you. But just know that that's not real news anymore. That's just entertainment. You're just watching like ET television now. Yeah. Entertainment tonight for anyone who doesn't watch. Right. It's just celebrity news at this point. Um, but I think it's probably time that we get close to an end. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, was, I have some final thoughts and then Please. I am just going to pass out in the chair and, and go to sleep. But, but I think you're on onto that there's there's a, an element of work to be done and honestly the the problem on a large scale going all the way back to my original points about over organization is that our lives are very organized and hectic and blocked off now right? there's no there's no shutting down there's no sitting in front of the fireplace the good old days when archie bunker was on tv <laughs> right but there's no sitting down and being able to read three newspapers for the pleasure of being informed anymore. And there's no reward for it. And that might mm -hmm. be the bigger issue is as we've become more of a service-based economy, we've started to look at more and more of our interactions as a cost benefit relationship, as something transactional. So what can I get out of reading five newspapers, maybe information, and maybe that might make me feel better if I get together with a bunch of other informed individuals and we talk about it. Or I can read the one news source that's going to confirm my beliefs, confirm my identity, security, and then I also get the pleasure of knowing that I'm right. Is the nice serotonin dump, dopamine, I am just swimming in it because now I can, I can say for certain that I am smarter than everybody that disagrees with me. Yep. And that's another just cultural move, that move to seeing everything as monetization. That's not a criticism of the culture inherently. That's an analysis of it, or my analysis of it, is you can see how time is money. Where do I get the best value for my money as I interact with individuals, interact with news sources? And again, going to school, as, as your other example you pointed out. 
I'm paying a lot of money to go to have this experience, but really what I want to pay for is the degree. And now society is telling you that an education really isn't, isn't real anymore. Everybody's got a degree. You're just one more overly educated or one more person with a degree. You're, you're nothing now. There's no reward to it. So I'm yeah. paying you money to go to your class to get my A because that's what I think should happen. That is where my reward expect. center is. Yeah. So you expect that of a consumer product. Yeah, it's transactional. Education has become transactional. The more I pay, the better my grade should be. Yeah. The more time I have to invest, because time is money, the better my grade should be. So you get people that might be studying ineffectively, but studying harder than people that are getting better grades than them, produce poor work, and then they have a genuine sense of resentment because you didn't grade them in such a way to reflect their, their perceived effort. Yeah. Um, it's a shame that we lost that education podcast. Uh, for anyone who might be thinking, well, students are students. Students are actually defined as customers by most universities <laughs> when you're doing training. <laughs> Just so everyone knows that, that is a clear universal thing. It is a customer service type of transaction now. Um, I mean, there, the, recently I was reading on the news uh, that students are uh, complaining and wanting to get refunds because they're not getting the quality of education that they paid for, right? They're, they're not getting what they paid for anymore. Um, yeah. And they have a point because yeah, they're, they're customers, but that's another podcast that hopefully we'll redo again because we lost that because of a corrupted file on my part. I deeply apologize. <laughs> um, I think we're going to call it for today. Yeah. The inauguration is on Wednesday. So if there's still a United States, we should probably do another one just to wrap up if, if and when something batshit crazy happens. And then we will, we'll touch on other subjects. This was just too, too juicy not to talk about. Absolutely. And there's a book on my shelf. It's the next, it was titled The Next Hundred Years. And the author suggests the United States might break up into to four different states. So it'd be like the, the, the California and the Western states, the Northeastern states, the rest of the states minus Texas as their own okay. countries. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. So it's, it's, worth, it's, a, it's a book worth reading if you're looking for something to read between now and the inauguration and see how likely <laughs> any of these predictions might be. But uh, otherwise, yeah, we'll see what happens on Wednesday. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks again for watching. Um, this has been the Untitled Philosophy Podcast. Do not forget to like, subscribe, and leave us any comments if you disagree with us or if there's something that you would like us to, for whatever reason, go over in incredible detail for an hour and a half, <laughs> but not come to a conclusion on anything. Yes. Let us know. And uh, I'll talk to you guys again soon. Take care, everybody.